Hello and welcome back to Camp Half Pod. We are your head counselors. I'm Erin, daughter of Athena. And I'm Manasa, daughter of Persephone. This week we're discussing chapters 16 through 18 of the Battle of the Labyrinth. Also, I can hear your Roomba. It's going! That's the Roomba. Oh, man. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Manasa's parents, Roomba. Oh my god, if Roomba sponsored me... I would die. <laughs> Please. Roomba's actually the third host of this episode. So he's screaming in the background. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway. Anyways, chapters 16 through 18. Yes. This week we're discussing chapters 16 through 18 of the Battle of the Labyrinth. <laughs> I don't even, a lot happens in this. I don't even know what happens. It was a lot. It was- I had the shortest chapter though, so I'm I'm chilling. A lot happens, but it's all just set up for the last book. True. Yep. For example, a quick summary: we're gonna finally come face to face with our biggest bad guy. We're gonna watch a god die, and then we're gonna have our final battle of this book, and it's all gonna be in three chapters. Woo! <laughs> all right, starting off, chapter sixteen. I open a coffin. Perseus falling to his death when Annabeth, luckily, shouts out instructions on how to properly use the wings. If you remember from our last episode, they jumped from Daedalus' workshop wearing golden wings and are plummeting to their death. Perseus then having the time of his life with his wings once he gets, you know, the, the, the chance to use them properly. And he's feeling invincible, but Annabeth quickly warns them to land. The wings won't last forever, and by the time they figure out how long they'll have with them, it'll be too late. They land on the terrace of the visiting center and throw out the already failing wings. Percy's like, wow, Annabeth is smart. Like, <laughs> I would have flown into the sun, even though there's an entire myth and I've had many dreams on why that's bad. Yeah, even though he just watched it happen in his dreams repeatedly. <laughs> When Percy goes to look through the, the, the tourist binoculars to find the workshop, he, they find that it's actually been moved. Percy asks Annabeth what the game plan is since Luke has now has a way to navigate through the maze, and Annabeth wonders aloud if Daedalus is dead, and that means that the labyrinth has probably collapsed, and that could potentially stop Luke from invading the camp. And then Percy remembers Grover and Tyson are still in the maze, and... He also is a conflicted because he's like, yeah, I agree that Daedalus sucks and he should have died a long time ago, but the idea of someone dying, especially in that way, really is tragic. And he also is like, poor Mrs. O'Leary. Um, yeah. He's the only person who care- apparently cares about Mrs. O'Leary, but okay. I care. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Nico confirms that the inventor is still alive. But unfortunately, he can't confirm or deny if Tyson and Grover are alive since they technically don't have quote-unquote mortal souls. They're not human, which is interesting, I thought. I was like, so I guess that's They also... are mortal. Well, it, it protects They're not Nico immortal. from being like, every time a bird dies, he's like, I, I feel its soul dying or like knows <laughs> it's dead or whatever. That'd be awful. And just so you know, it's just 7 billion people on the planet when they die. You'll know. Casual 7 billion. Casual. <clears throat> they decide that they need to get to town to get to the labyrinth since there's all, it's the fastest way to get them back to camp and they need to get ready for their battle. 
Rachel says she'll handle getting them a car, and Percy goes with her. She simply walks up to a chauffeur and tells him something that makes him literally leave his client behind and agree to chauffeur the gang. They climb in the car, and Rachel won't explain how she's able to convince the driver into dropping everything to help her, and instead they pick out on the car snacks and look for the entrance. I just, like, feel so bad for the person who rented the... I also don't understand uh-huh. how this works. Even, okay, logically speaking, even if you... And a spoiler alert, uh, Rachel has a big name she throws around. Even if you could throw around a big name, could you prove it? And also, like, if someone came up to me and was like, you know, I'm so-and-so's daughter, I'd be like, that's nice. You're not the one who's paying me right now. I have a prior commitment. Like, I don't care. Yeah, like, does Rachel pay him? I don't think she does. No, she doesn't. She just drops her dad's name. No spoiler, I guess. (laughs) She just drops her dad's name and then... You know, it's good to go. And the guy who's paid is suddenly stranded without a chauffeur or a car. (laughs) So this book is teaching us to drop our rich relatives' names and get things for free. Exactly. Also, the fact (laughs) that, like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, like, it's so ridiculous to me that this chauffeur doesn't even know her. Like, she could be lying. (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine being that rich that you could just drop your... Like, if you were, like, you know, Beyonce. Now, every... Obviously, I feel like if someone was Beyonce, I would... I would drop everything Beyonce. Yeah, if I was a cab driver and Beyonce was like, can you please give me a ride instead, I'd be like, bye, client. I guess, like, Beyonce's child being like... Oh, you mean Blue Ivy Carter? I would drop everything for Blue Blue Ivy. (laughs) Grammy Award winner. (laughs) Maybe I need to pick, like, a more middle-line celebrity. She's just like, it's like if Jeff Bezos had a child, you know? He does have children. <laughs> does he? I feel so bad for them. Maybe I don't, actually. They've grown up in, like, extreme wealth. No, don't feel oh, bad. They also they? have their mom is pretty cool. I know. Are they single? <laughs> Asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. Amazon Jeff Bezos and his ex-wife, novelist Mackenzie Scott, share four twilled children. I can't talk today. Twildwin? Twildwin. Three sons and one daughter. They adopted their daughter from China. The offspring of the wealthiest man in the world prefer to stay out of the limelight. Yeah, fair. But Interesting. Also, you're a chauffeur. You're building your reputation on your business, right? And so... The chance that this person is telling the truth that they are so-and-so's daughter is slim. But the chance that your client that you've abandoned and left behind gives you a one-star review is very high. Yeah, really bad Yelp review from that client. Yeah. They'll be like, some little redhead kid just came up and demanded a ride and they left me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anyway, Rachel sees something in the Western Museum of Mining and Industry, and it's the entrance to the labyrinth, which is in an old mine entrance. The chauffeur is a little uncomfortable leaving the children in an abandoned mine, but Rachel's like, it's cool, and he's like, oh, okay, boss. Anyway, (laughs) the rich are literally not realistic, but whatever. Different lifestyle. Okay, when they get closer to the mine, Percy sees the mark of Daedalus, and they descend back into the labyrinth. Rachel and Annabeth make some small talk and end up talking about architecture, something that they both have a bit of background in, so Percy's forced to hang out with his weird goth child instead. (laughs) Percy thanks Nico for coming back for them, though Nico says he was just repaying the debt of being saved at the ranch. He thinks Daedalus should be dead, and no one should be able to avoid death for that long. It's unnatural. 
Nico also admits that he's been lonely and struggling because he's only had the dead for company and they don't actually really hang out with him. They only fear him and follow him because he's technically like the ghost king. Yeah, that's exactly how all my friends feel about me. <laughs> I don't think you're the king of anything. They fear me and follow me. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> To me. <laughs> what are you gonna bite our ankles? I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Percy suggests that he could have he's like, if you come to camp, you could have friends. But neither of them really believe it. Rachel stops at a crossroads, looking super creeped out. Percy smells eucalyptus like their friend, you know, laid on back in the last book. Landed, if you will. Mm-hmm. Rachel says that there's something evil and very powerful down that tunnel, and that Nico adds, also smells like death. Very important info. Thank you, Nico. No wonder he won't be popular at camp. <laughs> of course, main character Energy Percy wants to check it out. He's like, this is it. This is Luke's entrance to Mount Othrys, and he's like, I should go alone. Percy says, I'm afraid of what would happen if Nico or Rachel get captured by Luke. But the truth is, and what he doesn't tell Annabeth, is that he doesn't trust her. He doesn't trust her not to be fooled and manipulated by Luke because it's happened a lot before. Annabeth gives Percy her Yankees cap. He notes that last time she gave him a kiss and not all he got was a cap. I was like, okay, let's put that on a t-shirt. Also, he just like, he just like like, shat all over her decision-making abilities, and then she's like, she didn't even kiss me goodbye. Yeah, what the heck? Also, like, Percy was just dead for, like, supposedly dead for two weeks, had spent time on an island with Calypso, come back, and is immediately like, let's call my other girlfriend. <laughs> like, <laughs> why doesn't Annabeth kiss me? <laughs> Stupid. Yeah! Oh, man. Percy creeps down the tunnel and hears the voice of the Telekine and Ethan Nakamura, who are wrapping a blade that apparently if you touch it, it will sever your soul from your body. He's wearing the cap, by the way, so he's invisible. Percy is pissed that he saved Ethan only for him to join the bad guys again. And I was like, did you provide him any structure or support, Percy? Or did you just say, okay, run and be free now? Like, Ethan has nowhere to go. <laughs> Obviously, he's going to go back to the only people helping him. Anyway. Aww. He gets to the fortress and sees the mist is super strong, means something powerful is happening. The telekines are holding a scythe that's about, <laughs> my British book says, two meters long. It's Kronos' weapon that he used to cut his father into pieces and then it was used on him. He's like, it's been reforged, which made me think of Lord of the Rings, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Percy runs from the blade and towards the mausoleum. He's like, it's time. If I can do anything to stop Kronos from rising, it has to be now and it has to be everything that I can, I, I got at this moment. No one is there except for the glowing sarcophagus. Percy draws his sword and wonders why Kronos hasn't, like, usually when Percy approaches anything, like the sarcophagus, Kronos starts his evil monologuing immediately, but it's silent. And Percy's like, something's up. Where is he? <laughs> Percy throws off the marble lid, ready to stab whatever he sees, but instead he sees Luke. He's too stunned and, you know, conflicted about stabbing his old best friend or, like, mentor or whatever. And the telekines hear the marble lid being thrown off, and so they think that Luke slash Kronos has woken up, and they run over to him to present him with their gifts, and they have Ethan swear his allegiance, which I think is really weird. 
does it say what their gifts are? The gifts is the, the scythe, and then also Ethan. Oh. It's like, Ethan That's has lame. to present the scythe. I know, it's like, here, it's a, um, a, an edible fruit basket for you. <laughs> <laughs> Some flowers. Nice, yeah. <laughs> Here's $10 off your next harvest box or whatever. <laughs> mm, but no. Percy gives away his position immediately by begging Ethan not to swear his allegiance, but Ethan, who is the child of Nemesis, the goddess of revenge, says this is what he was made to do and wakes Cronus slash Luke up. Luke now has golden eyes and the wound in his chest is gone. Wherever he stands, ice forms and Luke's voice is layered with another deeper, scarier voice when he speaks. He flicks his hand and Percy simply flies across the room. Kronos admits that Luke had feared Percy, but obviously, Grandpappy Kronos does not. <laughs> Percy finally realizes he's, you know, he's screwed, and he makes a run for it, but his feet feel like lead, and time has slowed around him. Kronos is fully bending time. Kronos is slowly, very casually, taking his time, making his way towards Percy with his scythe when Rachel throws her hairbrush and hits the Titan in the eye. In Luke's voice, no longer layered with Kronos' voice, he says, Ow! Fully shocked. And Annabeth tries to talk to Luke, but Percy literally grabs her by the back of her shirt and hauls her, and then he runs as fast as he can back towards the labyrinth. The telekines are about to grab them when Nuko literally earthbends, which I didn't know was the power of Hades, but okay, and causes the fortress to start collapsing, and the squad descends back into the labyrinth. Rachel hitting Kronos with a hairbrush is iconic. Honestly. I love it. I mean, imagine you're a mortal girl and you're in this world. And the, what is the one thing that you can possibly do? You're like, okay, apparently she carries a hairbrush on her, which is hilarious to me, and throws it. Yeah. Yeah. I had a couple of notes. I think that it's silly that they, both of them are like, yeah, you know, Nico wouldn't be accepted in camp because he's too into death and he's kind of creepy and he like... You know, he calls himself the Ghost King and he's way too powerful. Like, Percy has one friend, maybe, at camp. And he's, like, camp is his favorite place in the world. So if Annabeth and Percy are just like, hey, Nico, we will be your friends. We're here for you. That's two friends. That's more than Percy has. So, like, I'm sure he'll have a great time. I just think it's silly. There's a lot of weirdos at camp also. Like, Nico is not the only weirdo with his King of Death stuff. I don't think they judge him. I'm sure there's someone else who's going to be like, that's really hot. I think, like, goth, you know? That goth <laughs> shit is super hot. There is someone else. <laughs> we'll find out later. In, uh, the next two series. Oh, God, it's so far away. Also, why is it necessary for Kronos to be woken up with the allegiance of a half-blood? That never made sense to me. Like, that's basically, like, he's a politician where he's like, I need a second in order to run for mayor or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Like, enough signatures on the ballot in order to get... <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was silly. Kronos is running for government. <laughs> that's essentially what he... I mean, that's essentially what he's doing, right? He's like, I will True. kill your former government, which is the gods, and replace it with me, the old government, <laughs> which never works. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also don't trust Annabeth. I do think that she has a soft spot for Luke. But it felt especially stupid from Percy because he has this very him or me mindset when it comes to loyalty. But then is shocked when Annabeth is just like, I don't really like.
like that you're like choosing Rachel in a lot of situations over me. Obviously, Luke is like evil and made bad decisions, and this is more about feelings. But if he's like, I don't like, I feel jealous that you like Luke, even though he's like, I'm right here, but then doesn't understand Annabeth and Rachel. It's just, it's silly to me. Yeah. Yeah. Percy's being like, I get he's right to not trust how she is around Luke, but at the same time, like, Annabeth is right. In a way. In a way. As we know by the ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, like, maybe if Annabeth had a little bit of time to figure it out and process her own... If they all went to therapy, Erin, a lot of this would be solved so much. Especially the gods. <laughs> oh, um, if Dionysus, the god of madness, wasn't their only, like, treatment for her mental illness at the <laughs> camp, maybe things would be a little better. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Oh, God, that's so true. Right? They're so screwed. They had no chance. So screwed. <laughs> so screwed. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Chapter 17, The Lost God Speaks. They run as fast as they can and as long as they can, Annabeth full out sobbing the whole time. When they finally stop, she asks what was wrong with Luke. Percy tells her what he saw in the coffin and that Kronos is now in Luke's body, somehow. Annabeth pleads that this can't be true and points out that when Rachel hit him with the hairbrush, he came back dazed for a second, so Luke must still be in there. Percy just isn't hearing her out at all, and Annabeth accuses him of wanting Luke to be evil, which I would say to that she's not wrong. Like, Percy mm -hmm. very much wants everything to be black and white, and a clear, like, this bad, this good. And that's just not the way the world is, Percy. And then Annabeth breaks down fully sobbing. Percy just doesn't know what to do to help her, and so he turns to compliment Rachel. I know. He's not, he's not the brightest, our dear boy. He like, it's like, well, I guess Annabeth's having a meltdown. Hey, Rachel, nice job with the hairbrush. And I'm like, your timing there, sir, the, just, just, you're just twisting the knife. <laughs> and Nico, who's trying to keep them all on track, points out that they need to keep moving and go back, get back to New York. But before they even get going, Percy spots something on the ground in front of them. It's Grover's Rasta cap. So the gang follows footprints that look like Tyson's and Grover's through a dark and steep tunnel. They find Tyson cradling Grover in his lap, at Grover's eyes closed and unmoving. Tyson tells them that they got attacked by a ton of stuff. Grover said they were close, got excited, and then collapsed and hit his head <laughs> on the rocks, which is a classic Grover move. <laughs> oh man, how you- imagine getting knocked out by yourself. Incredible. Because hmm. he's just so excited about Pan. <laughs> Grover wakes up and is totally fine. Again, it turns out that Pan's presence was too much for him because he's a he's a major Pan fan. <laughs> a Pan stan? <laughs> oh, I love
love rhyming, and about deduces <laughs> that they're in the Carlsbad Caverns, which is near where Grover felt pan in New Mexico when they were being chased by that wild pig in the last book. They follow the river, because there's a river in this underground cavern, I guess, and as they get closer, Percy starts to feel his weariness wash away. At this point, Grover is fully quaking with excitement, which is just kind of adorable. I kind of love it. <laughs> they step into a cave, and there's Pan. The cave sounds really cool. There's a ton of crystals, flowers, moss, and there's a big bed in the middle with velvet cushions because Pan lives a luxurious lifestyle. <laughs> is that biodegradable? <laughs> Pan's like, I may be dying, but I'm gonna get myself this nice-ass bed. <laughs> there's no one to stop me. How? What's the thread count on that? I don't know. It's gotta be real high. I know. <laughs> Animals are lounging around the bed. There's a dodo bird a name, named Dee Dee and a bunch of other strange or extinct animals. And on the bed is an old satyr. Grover falls to his knees before Pan and is just so happy. He's, he's stoked about Pan's presence. And he immediately asks Pan to come back with him and save the wild because, you know, the planet's dying. And Grover's like, come back and save it with me. And to this, Pan says, you are so young, Grover. So good and true. I think I chose well. And obviously this confuses Grover. Chose what? Chose who? And why? And Pan's image then begins to flicker, and he tells them that he is near the end, which Nico confirms. Nico's like, yeah, that dude's not really alive. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, I didn't want to say anything. Like, <laughs> He's on his literal deathbed. Yeah, literally. He's like, it's a nice bed, at least. I know. He tells them that he tried to tell the world thousands of years ago that he was dead, but nobody listened. And gods can fade once everything they ever stood for is gone. The wild has gotten so small and shattered that, quote, no god can save it now, which mm -hmm. feels very relevant and depressing. Clearly. I mean, each year it gets worse in this, this earth. We just had the hottest day ever in um, Seattle area, so... That's great. As, I mean, now, clearly Pan doesn't know about Jeff Bezos and his incredible, you know, phallic-shaped spaceship that he's launching into the sky, so... Oh, don't worry. I'm gonna talk about that. I have... I don't know how. I We'll see how it comes naturally. <laughs> but when I was writing this outline, I somehow started thinking about Jeff Bezos and got really angry. I'll finish this summary, though, first. Pan instructs Grover to go to the satyrs and tell them that Pan is, like, really dead this time. And I do find it really funny that Pan, like, tried to die a thousand years ago. He was like, I'm gone. And everyone was like, nah, you're not. And he was like, damn it. And he's just been, like, this weird ghost thing for so long. And Pan tells them that they must make their own salvation and take up his calling. His spirit can no longer be carried by a god and must be taken up by all of them. Grover doesn't want to. He's like, no, I want you to live and restore the wild. But Pan must go. And I'm going to read a little, little bit from the book. I know, the god said, but my name, Pan, originally it meant rustic. Did you know that? But over the years, it has come to mean all. The spirit of the wild must pass to all of you now. You must tell each one you meet. If you would find Pan, take up Pan's spirit. Remake the wild, a little at a time, each in your own corner of the world. You cannot wait for anyone else, even a god, to do that for you. <laughs> That's a lazy answer. Just go fix the wild. I agree. You're I agree. You're a god. 
Yeah, and also, I mean, each time, when I read this as a kid, I was like, eh, that's too bad. When I read this, like, as an adult and reread it, I was, like, kind of tearing up because I was like, oh my god, the world. The world is on fire. And this time I read it, I just felt angry. Yeah. Which I'll go into. But I'll finish it after... After Pan says that dramatic speech, he closes his eyes and dissolves. The animals around him also dissolve. The vines wither, and then they're just standing in a dark cave with an empty bed. So we know the bed wasn't part of nature. It was He bought it somewhere. It was a waterbed from Krusty. <laughs> wow, it comes Throwback. full circle. It comes full circle. The god Pan is dead. Okay, so my notes on this. I have a lot. Poor, first of all, poor Annabeth, because Percy sucks here. Like, even though Annabeth has kind of sucked to him with her jealousy, like, Percy, at least give her a hug as she's, like, sobbing on the floor. It's not a good look. I think he, like, pats her shoulder once and is like, sorry, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's like, and then when they have to leave, he just kind of, like, taps her and is like, we gotta go, man. (laughs) She's just like, I'm fine. Oh. So... I was thinking, like, Pan dying makes me emotional, but this time it made me angry. Because it's definitely the narrative that they're writing in this story is the idea of, like, the children must take on the burden and fix the world. The children will fix all our problems, you know? And it just feels like it's very much a product of its times. Like, this was written, what, like, 2010 or something? I don't mm-hmm. actually know. Let me check. 2008. Which was very much peak recycle and save the save the planet time period. But we just, like, in the story, we repeatedly have this pattern of gods or adults messing up and kids having to clean up their messes, which is also true in the world. And not that Pan messed up, because Pan is, like, the the god of the wild it's the humans that rather like generations of greedy humans destroying the earth but it's being watered down to this narrative of like only you can save it for yourselves which the reality is that like like most environmentalists are like if you it doesn't matter if you use plastic straws what matters is these stupid old rich dudes and corporations that aren't doing anything because they're pieces of trash like Jeff Bezos, and they're going to space instead of, like, funneling their money into innovative ways to save the environment. And I don't like the way that this book is like, Grover, Percy, take up my mission, when it's like, I don't know. Like, you shouldn't have to, like, not that recycling is bad, you know? But if anyone ever tells you that you can solve climate change just by recycling, they're wrong. Like, recycle. But the real difference is from, like, divestment from fossil fuels and, like, dismantling capitalism, you know? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Is this your bid to run for office? There we go. I'm running against Kronos. (laughs) (laughs) Vote for Aaron. I mean, it's also the fact that Pan is a god. Yeah. By putting, like, Percy and... You know, he's a demigod, but he's like, okay, fine, this sucks, but it's my destiny. But can you imagine being like, the gods can't even do it, but, like, good thing we have children. Like, the only have children to fix your mistakes is not a narrative that I'm comfortable with. Yeah, and it's like, the uh, it, it translates to our real live time period of being, like, adults and people in power and politicians being like, the children are our hope. And I'm like, 
the children are screwed unless you people fix things. And I just, like, feel Grover's pain here because it's, like, for our generation, but especially for even younger folks, because, you know, we're, like, we're, like, zillennials, you know? We're, like, both millennial and Gen Z. But, like, especially for younger people who are given this burden of saving the earth when it's not our fault, it's the way it is, and the people whose fault it is won't do anything because of capitalism, and I think that we should get rid of all of them. (laughs) Send them all to space, and then don't let them come back. (laughs) The end. (sighs) Yeah. It's just, it's a lot, and, um... But yeah, um, recycle. <laughs> <laughs> the three R's. Reuse, recycle, and uh, Rihanna. <laughs> You're right. You're correct. Thank you, thank you. And my other note on, on a similar note is that I forgot how fast Pan dies. Like, it's like, they meet him and like a page later he dies. But he still takes longer to die than Amazon factory workers get to take their breaks. Oh, Oh, she's getting political. This was a political rant, people. I mean, this whole chapter is about, like, environmentalism. And I think that if it was written now, I think, I don't know. But guessing from Rick's books, they've gotten progressively more progressive. Because as Mm. the times change and, you know, he learns more as humans do. I don't know. I wonder how he would have done it today, because this is very much that, like, reduce, reuse, recycle time period. Yeah. And also the theme. I caught the theme here of never meet your heroes again. (laughs) They'll just die. Because, like, Pan, not Pan is, like, disappointing, but, like, just kind of dies. Like, it's kind of disappointing. Like, Grover's worked his whole life. You'd think he'd be real depressed after this. Can you imagine? You're like, this is, okay, this is my one accomplishment. This is what I need to do. And you're planning for it, and then you get to it, and it's like, actually, there's a much harder, much more impossible task that you have to do, and it's going to ostracize you from everyone you know and love. Good luck. And also, I won't help you. He's not <laughs> <Yeah>. dying. <laughs> but feel the Egyptian cotton sheets I get to die on. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I know Pan's the god of the wild, but, like, where do you get that bed, you know? Like, <laughs> is he Macy's? Jeff Bezos? <laughs> <laughs> Did he get it from Amazon? Two-day prime delivery? <laughs> is he going, is he not really dying? He's getting in a rocket ship that's shaped like a penis and going into space? Oh, man. But the reality is it's not just Bezos that we have to blame. It's everyone that's high up in corporate structures. I feel like we often just blame him and, like, all the other stupid millionaires get by free. Just, you know, I'm going to radicalize all the children listening to this. Children, make your own (laughs) opinions. Please make your own decisions, but also don't trust adults and rich people. The end. (laughs) We're adults, dude. (laughs) Shh. Don't tell them. (laughs) All right. Chapter 18, Grover Causes a Stampede. All right. Are you all ready? This is going to be a big Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. They come out of the New York City Marriott entrance feeling dazed and depressed. Percy whistles and a flock of pegasi come to help them get to camp as fast as possible. Percy and Rachel say goodbye, in which Rachel reveals that she's the rich white girl of Percy's sugar mommy dreams. Her father is a super big businessman who has a lot of influence everywhere, hence the chauffeur, 
which he's never really explains how he has this influence, but it's fine. He's a land developer, and Rachel now feels responsible for Pan's death. Percy assures her that she can't hold that burden herself, and, I mean, she doesn't have to if she simply launched her dad into space and left him there, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> and then he throws a, sl- like he's a slew of compliments at her. Rachel asks him to call her, and Percy unfortunately has to admit he's memorized her number, which delights Rachel, and they go their separate ways. The Pegasus that is supposed to carry Nico is still skittish because he smells like dead people, and Nico doesn't want to go to camp anyway. He's like, you go on without me. But Annabeth gently asks him to join, and to Percy's surprise, he agrees. He's like, when did you... Why is Nico listening to you? The goth (laughs) child listens to no one. I'm like, maybe Percy, if you weren't so annoying... It's fine. They, <laughs> they get to camp and tell Chiron everything, and he readies the, their camp for attack. Selenius, who has no concept of good timing, demands information from Grover of the search of Pan, since he's already three weeks overdue. Grover explains that Pan died, and all the other members of the squad vouch for him. But obviously, Selenius thinks Grover is full of crap. He's like, our entire existence is for the searching of Pan, and dedicated to Pan. You can't just say he's dead. Like, that's ridiculous. He can't get into it, though, because they're literally under attack, and Chiron suggests they pick it up after the Battle of the Labyrinth. Via the Labyrinth, actually, because it's not of the Labyrinth. They're just coming out of the Labyrinth at the camp. Anyway, Mm -hmm. all the campers start setting up traps and getting ready for an attack with weapons and using their specialties. It looks impressive to Percy, but obviously Chiron knows that a bunch of preteens aren't going to stop the literal (laughs) Lord of Time. Chiron asks Percy to stay by him so he can send him where they will need him the most, something they'll figure out once the battle has already started. Percy and Chiron try to discuss how the Titan was able to merge into Luke's body without turning it into ash. Chiron's like, he must have done something it's never happened before. The ability to use a mortal's body like that has never happened before. And Percy says that the Telekines had mentioned that Luke's body had been prepared somehow but they don't really get a chance to talk more about it because then the battle starts the titan's army explodes from the labyrinth everyone begins fighting and every time they think they have the battle under control another wave of monsters comes from the tunnel finally chiron sends percy out to defend some satyrs who are about to be pounced on by a giant hellhound nico stops a group of dracaena who slither away from the fight to go set the camp on fire. They clearly know where to go, which reinforces the idea that there's a spy in the camp. Or, like, someone has been telling them details, or even Luke's old memories, like, hey, go that way, that's the weakest point of the camp. He stops the Dracaena by calling an army of the undead, which is very convenient. Satyrs are dying, Nico is on his knees, a son of Dionysus goes down, and now there's a forest fire spreading. Percy calls on water from the creek, which is almost like half a kilometer, which I don't know how many miles or feet that is, away and douses the flames. Percy thinks the battle is balanced again when the campe shoots out from the sky. Campers are screaming and running from her, but they get trampled by giants and hellhounds while running. Tyson tries to round the troops to stand and fight her, but is tackled by a hellhound and is rolling away. Annabeth and Percy stand side by side, ready to fight the prison guard of Tartarus. This might be it, she said. Could be. Nice fighting with you, seaweed brain. Ditto. And together they leap at the monster, which is like a chef's kiss. So good. 
I wouldn't mind a kiss there, but it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's same, okay. But okay. Yeah. yeah. Percy calls for help, but there's oh. no one left oh. who's really able to help them. Annabeth and Percy go down and are about to be stabbed by Campe's poisoned swords, scimitars actually, when as something, we know. as we know, now we've learned, mm-hmm. when something large slams into Campe. It's Mrs. O'Leary. Daedalus is fighting his way out of the labyrinth, fighting with Braries, like, on his side. Together, <laughs> Braries and Mrs. O'Leary attack and defeat Campe. The campers cheer, the monsters aren't done yet. A giant manages to surprise Chiron and knocks him off his feet. Six giants charge him and Percy's too far away to help. Then, Grover opens his mouth and the most horrible sound comes out. Percy describes it like a brass trumpet magnified a thousand times, the sound of pure fear. All of Kronos' forces drop their weapons and run in fear. Those who do not run are trampled and just like that the battle is over. The wounded are being tended to by Apollo's cabin, and Tyson calls Percy over to help with the very wounded Nico. Nico has overstretched his powers a bit and is now injured. So Percy's giving him nectar, and like, you know, his child is injured. He's tending to him. His goth son. His goth son. Mm-hmm. While he's tending to him, Daedalus comes over. Briars calls Tyson his hero, causing the Cyclops to blush, which is very cute. And Percy tells Daedalus that the army is still in the labyrinth. And Daedalus basically says, it's time to die. (laughs) He hands his life's work over to Annabeth, saying it's a small compensation for the way he acted when he met her. And she was right as the children of Athena, they should be wise, but Daedalus had been acting on fear rather than logic. Nico says that he will help Daedalus get a fair trial, even if the trial is going to be run by Minos, and he will let Bianca rest. He won't try to use Daedalus' soul to get Bianca back. Just growth, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Finally, Daedalus gives Mrs. O'Leary to Percy to care for, and Nico releases Daedalus' spirit, and they feel a giant rumble as everywhere in the country, the labyrinth collapses. Ooh. That was just like a spew of words at you. <laughs> Lots of battle. Lots of battle. Nico and Annabeth's relationship is super interesting to me because I could very much read that he has a crush on her. Which I could believe he has a crush on her. Like, she's this older, cool girl. She blushes every time she talks to him or if she touches him. But I can also think, like, it as a way, like, he has a soft spot for Annabeth. Because Percy likes him. Percy feels responsible for him. And Nico probably is tired of, like, thinking Percy is helping him out of guilt of, like, his sister dying. So having validation of Annabeth also liking him and taking care of him. It's probably nice. I'm sure he also misses his sister. So having that relationship or seeing a girl around Bianca's age who cares for mm-hmm. him, like, helps a lot. Yeah. The other thought I had is, like, he kind of knows. Maybe he's, like, seeing the way, without giving a lot of spoilers away, he's seeing the way Annabeth is feeling that jealousy and feeling irritated for her feelings for Percy. And he's just like, I understand what it feels like to like someone who doesn't like me back. Mm-hmm. Also be mad at myself for liking said person because it's stupid and I shouldn't feel this way. Mm-hmm. I think that might be, he, he, he would be a lot more emotionally intelligent than I, you know, he actually is. I think I'm giving him a lot more credit. <laughs> I think it's more like he just sees like an older sister in her. Yeah. Or maybe he does even have a crush on her, like, you know, what he thinks is a crush. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I also think, and uh, spoiler alert for Heroes of Olympus for the next, like, 15 seconds, I think Rick didn't know he was gay yet. <laughs> like, 
Oh, 100%. I, don't, I think he wrote him as having a crush on Annabeth and then changed his mind in Heroes of Olympus and was like, you know, it would be interesting. I mean, I like the idea of it, too, because Rick was like, how do I show that this immensely powerful, very goth, scary child is a child? Yeah. Well, making him uncomfortable around girls. Like, that's True. such an easy way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He blushes around girls. He doesn't know how to handle himself around, like, mom figures, dad figures, stuff like that. Because he's, like, trying to be badass and older than he is. But at the end of the day, he's 12. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that was weird, and then Percy also mentions, is that gods are forbidden from directly taking action because he's like, Dionysus, if Dionysus is here, it would have helped, but Dionysus can't actually help us because they've forbidden taking direct actions. But he even, he says, but I guess Titans aren't, so, you know, now we're getting attacked. Yeah, that sucks. The gods should just change their rules for, like, this circumstance. I know! They're like, okay, if you break the rules, we break the rules. What is it, the Geneva Conventions? Mm -hmm. Like, please. Where's the UN of the gods? <laughs> it's it's Percy. It's Percy, it's the UN. Yeah. Oh, it's Chiron alone. Oh, God. Yeah. Not very effective. Good intentions, you know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's it. That's the, the specific battle of the labyrinth. Honestly, it goes by kind of fast. Like, a lot's jam-packed in there, but... It's only one chapter for the whole book being named after it. I know. I mean, it doesn't even happen in the labyrinth, so it makes sense that it's only one chapter. The book should have been called The Battle Via the Labyrinth. The Battle Near the Labyrinth. Okay, let's do some lightning bolt round questions. My first one for you. Would you want to fly with Daedalus's wings? And what would you do? Slash where would you go? Yes. Not over any body of water and not too high because Daedalus clearly is not good at making wings. He's had years. He has millennials to like perfect making wings and still Percy's wings break after five minutes of flying. Like Daedalus, maybe you should just give it up. You know, find a new you know, hobby. We have planes. Boeing has already outdone you. Just yeah. move on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think I would fly too, but I would very much stay over land and not go very high. Or if I was over water, I, like, wouldn't be high and I would be near shore. It makes sense. Yeah, right? It's basic logic, but, you know, it's okay. So, Grover passes out when he senses that Pan is near. Whose presence would make you pass out if you sensed they were near? Oh, I don't know. Pass out? (sighs) Or get a little... Get as close to pass out as you would. To be honest, (laughs) any, like, person I have, like, feelings for, which hasn't (laughs) happened in a long time. Feelings? What are those? (laughs) I know. I'm just, like, I just short circuit, which is always very funny for everyone because I, I don't do that for anyone else. So it's, like, everyone will think I'm flirting. I'm, like, no, if I liked you, I would be, like running into walls and stuff you're like i wouldn't be speaking to you <laughs> i would be yeah. on the other be, side in of the, the corner hyperventilating yeah exactly <laughs> that's really funny <laughs> what about you um you know probably taylor swift <laughs> that's fair big Just fan like of a celebrity work. yeah big fan of your work i don't know what i would even say to mm. her i'd be like um nice songs <laughs> <laughs> they're good <laughs> yeah. there's some good songs in there 
Okay, and then what would be your role during a battle? Like, would you be, like, combat? Would you be in the strategy tent? Setting traps, building stuff, medical, I don't know. I just listed all the things I could think of. You can make your own role. I think I'd either be medical or I'd be kind of doing what Percy does. It's a go stand at the top and see where I needs help and then go provide what I can think of for that. Because I'm really mm-hmm. good in the moment, like, in a crisis, I can, do, I can deal with stuff like that. I don't have a lot of foresight, so I'm not great at strategizing. I'll get, like, bored. I'll go chase a flower, you know, like a butterfly. (laughs) But, like, in the moment, I'll be like, okay, this is what's happening. Okay, that place needs this. This place needs that. Like, I can do that. And then medical also, like, I'm good with wounds and such, so. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, child of Athena, what would you choose? Uh, Well, surprise, surprise, I would definitely choose the strategy tent because, um, inversely i am not great in a cri on my feet but i am good at planning for crises crises <laughs> crisis ease clearly a child of athena because i know words <laughs> <laughs> they're all dyslexic i feel like i'm good at um planning for every possible scenario except when the scenario happens if i don't have a plan i don't know what to do with myself so that's fair i would definitely be better there i think in combat i would i've always my tactic to win the hunger games would always have been to hide so that's my method for combat is to hide from a tree and like shoot people you know yeah yeah (laughs) that's fair thank you thank you well Mm. that wraps up all of my questions and this episode next week we are doing chapters 19 and 20 which is the very end of this book which is really wild because i feel like we just started this mm-hmm. and it went by so fast ah what is time but it's gonna be great we're gonna finish the book and then go on into the last book in this series if you're not already make sure you follow us on social media we're on all platforms at camp half pod and feel free to email us with whatever you'd like to send us at camphalfpod at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.